welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Tom Witcher, and he is the founder of Dr. Doctor and someone that I've known for a very long time. So Tom is a biomedical engineer by background and worked for a management consultancy firm, and he's actually got quite a few uh, funny stories to tell from his time at that management consultancy firm, but anyway, it set him up for his later career, as he'll explain. Uh, and that was when he identified an opportunity, and that was to improve hospital outpatient appointment bookings and all the incredible savings that can be made from doing that well. So in 2012, he launched Doctor Doctor, and they aim to improve that communication around scheduling outpatient appointments between patients and hospitals. Loads to get in this one if you're an entrepreneur in this space or indeed looking to solve any problem. So I hope you enjoy. So Tom, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? I'm great, James. It's well overdue. It's fantastic to be talking to you. Thanks, buddy. It is certainly overdue. I've noticed this has been in the diary for like months. You're a very busy man these days, mate. I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing more about it. And uh, yeah, so listen, the, the way that we start these podcasts, buddy, is that we get you to tell your story. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this because you've got you've got an interesting background as it is, but then obviously an interesting journey to where you are now with Dr. Doctor. So uh, tell me all about it. Sure. Well, it's fair to say that my route into health tech was slightly unusual. I, if we go right back, um, I mean, I studied engineering at Southampton University, and the main reason that I went to Southampton was that I'm really into sailing. So, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I am. I, I sort of raced professionally um, for a few years. and I did, Oh, awesome. Um, like the, the national youth squads when I was in my teens and stuff. Uh, and Southampton is the best place in the country if you want to go, if you want to go sailing. Wow. And, and I actually studied naval architecture. So I, I wanted to be a yacht designer when I was ha, 18. This is epic. I honestly didn't know any of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I had no interest in healthcare at all, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I had, I had a great few years at Southampton. You know, I did, I did some, some brilliant uh, events. I was really lucky to go all around the world racing and we won some stuff and lost some stuff. Um, I've done my RYA level two, if that means anything to you. <laughs> capsized recovery. And, uh, Mate, loved it. I was really good. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so nowhere near naval architecture, but um, yeah, I can take a little boat out. <laughs> I think um, particularly offshore sailing, when you sort of do, you know, four or five, maybe more days racing with a crew. Yeah. Be an amazing model for entrepreneurship. Because, Interesting. Yeah, it's it's all about diversity. There's highs and lows. It's roller coasters like starting your businesses. Um, how do you motivate a team? How do you think about tactics? How do you think about strategy? Um, you know, there's there's ever so many analogies, and I have to say, all through my journey, I've I've drawn on what I learned racing and sailing with friends, and um, that is really interesting because it's high stakes teamwork, isn't it? Essentially. It really is, you know, and um, some of the some of the racing I did, you know, would be would be racing on 150 foot long boats that were owned by very wealthy people who were incredibly competitive, and they they bring in a crew of uh, of pros to come and and race the boat and try and win the trophies for them. Wow! Doing that stuff in your early 20s um, taught me a lot as well about how you kind of manage 
expectations of an owner and um and also managing risk you know if you're wow. going to 20 million pounds worth of super yacht close to some rocks um you've got to be confident in your data and confident in your in your calls so that is so interesting mate because so my friend andy hadland did my did the ria level two with me mm. but his then initiation by fire was was some one of his friends dropped out of the the race around the isle of wight okay and he just sort of stepped in just being like oh i've just done this thing <laughs> like i could do this and they were like oh, we've literally got nobody else but uh <laughs> he he came back and said the same thing as you like he's in entrepreneurship as well he's he's got an energy technology startup and uh yeah he said the same thing as you you know it is super high stakes teamwork and the ability to actually of the leader to galvanize everybody to make sure that everybody's got their individual elements that they that they do and as you say taking care of a 20 million pound asset very close to uh, lots of rocks and danger yeah it's it sounded just like incredibly stressful but also incredibly rewarding as well definitely is definitely is it teaches you a lot about yourself and you know if you ever really want to find out um what motivates you deep down is you know go offshore for four or five days don't sleep don't wash um and then try and you know still compete in a race it's it's a great kind of way of discovering a lot about yourself it's, it's yeah, it's quite, it's almost like I, I hear people talk about this in in lots of things, whether it's sporting achievement or whether it's academic achievement sometimes or whatever it is. But it seems that when you're when you're absolutely pushed to the limit, I've heard this phrase a few times that people people say they come back knowing how much you can actually do in a day. Yeah, and a few people have said that to me, and even people that have worked in like management consultancy, even which I think is part of your background as well. But it's 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 this thing of like you learn of like how much you can actually do in a day. You know, none of this nine to five stuff. But if you are then set on the right path, if you've got the right goal, if you've got the right desire and motivation to do something like build a company, there's actually a heck of a lot you can do within a day. So much, so much, and um, it's it's remarkable what we're all capable of if we want to. Absolutely, mate. So, uh, tell me more. You so, obviously yeah. didn't. You obviously didn't stay in sailing, unless you got, are going to tell me you won Olympic gold or something. Sadly, not. Sadly, not. But I realised <laughs> realize two things. I realised that not very many people um, make a career out of being a yacht designer, um, and I wasn't quite good enough to uh, to go to the Olympics. In fact, I'm a long way from being good enough to go to the Olympics. <laughs> um, so I had to kind of get a normal job, I suppose, and uh, I ended up working in oil and gas. For a few years, yeah, um, just kind of you know, I had an engineering degree. Lots of people who do um, do the sort of degree I did end up working for for oil companies, and I and I did that, you know, for two years. Enjoyed it a lot, but um, I'm someone who likes new challenges, mm. and so uh, I moved to a management consultancy company called Newton, who, for me, as a kind of twenty four or five year olds offered something which was really exciting, which was new project every six months. Um, it very much was about going and delivering operational change. So you know, there's different sorts of management consultancy. There's the, uh, there's the people who write the strategy decks, there's the people who advise, and then there's the people that do. And we were very much in that operational change bucket. So interesting. I would, I, I did some brilliantly fascinating projects. So I, I worked in, 
a vegetable peeling factory that peels all of the vegetables for Domino's <laughs> pizzas. Um, Amazing. Uh, and, you know, on the ground, talking to the guy that ran the works for the carrot peeling machine, working out how we can make it quickly, working out where the waste was, pulling data where it wasn't data before, you know, literally in scrubs. Um, well, they're not scrubs <laughs> there, but um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, overalls. And, yeah. uh, and um, taking that data, putting it on some slides, presenting it to the COO that afternoon, and then going and making the change the next morning. Uh, and so that very short cycles then. Super short cycles, mm. you know. And again, you know, you needed the confidence to to challenge the status quo. There's a guy that's, you know, done the same job for 30 years and you go along and have a conversation with them about how they can do it better. So that's a hard conversation to have. Yeah, I always, thought, I always think that of, of management consultants, you know, like that for me would be would be the most difficult bit, I think, actually being able to... To, to go in there and, as you say, have the confidence to, to do that. And I suppose, you, does that require quite a lot of communication skills as well? I imagine it does. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of... Uh, I learned a lot about how, I, how to communicate with people doing that role. Yeah. I think basically what happens is, as a graduate, you go in, you have those conversations and you have them very badly. Yes. And, you know, and, and I certainly worked on sites where there was... Animosity isn't quite the right word, but um, people were not pleased to have you there. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's through having those conversations lots of times that you learn how to have them well and, um, you know, to learn a mutual respect. I suppose and resilience as well when it does go badly. Exactly, and resilience. And to be honest with you, I ended up, pretty much every project I did, I had so much fun with the teams. Yeah. You'd go through a period of, you know, of being a bit uncertain with each other, but by the end of it, yeah. You know, you're going for a drink together. Yeah, nice. Together, and um, there's, it, it taught me there's nothing like results to galvanise a team. Interesting. Um, and I've always tried to stay close to that. So whenever I um, would do a new project, I would look for some kind of improvement, even if it was very, very small, really early on. Because as soon as people see that, they then see that the process you're following is actually going to make their lives better. Yeah, it's going to make the result better. Um, and you can begin to kind of drive a really positive cycle off of that. Yeah. Um, and we about, actually, Sorry, about management consultancy, just jump in. Hmm. I think a lot, of, a lot of people go from management consultancy to entrepreneurship. And in fact, a lot of people go from healthcare and medicine to management consultancy to entrepreneurship. You've mentioned a few things that clearly contribute to uh, or, or, or a, a shared qualities with good entrepreneurs where you, you know you talk about resilience you talk about the things that you've learned about how to galvanize a team strategy communication all those things why why do what or, or let me just ask this really openly do you think management consultancy prepared you for entrepreneurship yes definitely mm. definitely it it gave me it, it did for me, it did a couple of things. It took the rough edges off. Okay. Uh, working in an environment which is high feedback, um, high expectation and results driven, absolutely kind of uh, helped, you know, improve things like communication, um, helped me kind of find clarity in how I thought about problems, but also how to kind of structure uh, questions in a data-driven way. It, it taught me all of that stuff. Mm. And it's also as a, as a kind of, um, as someone, particularly if you're starting your career, you know, to work in, you know, I worked in FMCG, I worked in pharma, I worked in defense, 
I worked in healthcare. Got it. You know, to, to do all of that and to, to work with, you know, 15 or 20 different management teams, all who have different styles. Um, it's like an accelerated, you know, you, you fit 20 years of learning into five. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the value of, of consultancy for me. I, I think management consultancy is a very broad uh, church and certainly the person that I am, and I think the person that most entrepreneurs are, is I, I enjoyed operational change because I was close to the problem. Sure. And I wouldn't have got the same, I personally wouldn't have got the same value out of strategy consultancy. Other people are different, but got um, it. you know, for me, it was about in a factory, working with the people on the shop floor, yeah. <laughs> seeing the results, you know, that, that's what gets me out of bed and gets me excited. That's really interesting actually. And I think for the people listening, that if, if they're anything like me, they might have just had their view changed as to what management consultancy actually is, mm. because I, I hadn't actually appreciated that there was so much on the shop floor, so to speak. And I didn't, I hadn't actually appreciated it. It was, it was so, um, complex is not the right word, but it involved a lot of that softer skill stuff of communication and relationships and, you know, that side of thing that I think I'd have actually been quite good at. And I actually shied away from management consulting because I didn't think it was for me, but I think you've done a good job there of actually showing the flip side of the coin, which is really good. Yeah. But, um, tell me, tell me what's next then, buddy. Um, so after, after Newton, yeah. But um, I think the other interesting thing about uh, Newton is um, there's a number of ex-Newton alumni in in healthcare and health tech. So Jacob, who oh, is there? For example. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, He's been on it. Um, there's a few of us around, um, so I think it is a good grounding. But anyway, so I um, I was interested in in FMCG. I was interested in fast-moving consumer goods. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't know anything about healthcare. I had no family that works in healthcare. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm totally honest, uh, I avoided healthcare projects to begin with. Yeah. Because I viewed them as um, a bit soft, uh, sure. kind of not, not that interesting and, and very slow. Yeah. But I went, I, you know, you don't get much choice in projects. And I, and I, uh, I got put on a project in Wolverhampton in the Midlands. Oh, that's where um, I was. That's where I was born, mate. That's where they, I lived for eighteen years of my life. Sorry, you had to be there. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I know because well, I spent eight months of my life there, um, <laughs> and I, I kind of fell in love quite quickly with health, mm-hmm. and I, I loved the fact that um, it brought together the process side, which I really enjoy, with the human element. Yeah, interesting like no other industry has that, you know, you don't, it's, it's not just about optimizing the machine. It's about thinking about the, the user and the patient. Um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating the interplay between people and process that happens in healthcare every day. And, yeah. and no one really thinks about that, but it's, it's there. Um, and, and so I ended up doing more and more healthcare projects and, you know, Wolves was, uh, we did a clinical coding project. We did an outpatient transformation project and we did a theaters project, all of which, you know, were, were successful. And then I, um, I moved around the Midlands a bit. I did a, I did a big project at um, University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire, where I basically led their outpatient transformation work um, alongside their, their team doing the change. So, you know, we were mm. partnered with their impact, impact team. 
um, we moved into partial booking from fully booking models and and that taught me a lot about scheduling and about um, the importance of the patient in the scheduling decision about the challenges that booking teams have about you know DNA cancellation and kind of some of the drivers for those yeah and it was while I was at Coventry that I met um, I met a couple of people who had a big impact on me so there was a consultant um, uh, an orthopedic surgeon there called called Professor Griffin, and he um, he did hip arthroscopies in young people, and he was using PROMS, patient recorded outcome measures, yep. to uh, to record the efficacy of his work, and he was one of the first people to do that in the country, I think. And he he opened my eyes to the use of of data collected from patients and the value of that in in healthcare, and really no one else was working as he was working. He was doing things like because he was bringing patients in from all over the country. Um, he was creating a one-stop shop, they'd travel, they'd see everybody they needed to see in a day. And the whole clinic was focused around the patient and the needs of the patient, not the needs of the doctors and not the needs of the, of the hospital administration system. And mm. um, so he, he showed me that there was a different way of doing things. Um, I met a number of, uh, of other really great clinicians there. And um, I sort of shared their frustration with the computer systems and the fact that you know, and this is not a reflection on, on, on this particular hospital at all. This is, this is very much a generality. But generally speaking, the technology in clinic gets in the way of, yeah. of the patient interaction. It's, um, you know, people are looking at computers rather than looking at, at patients. You know, doctors really struggling to enter data effectively into computer systems to, to retrieve and find data from EPRs. And I, um, I actually kind of wanted to build an EPR originally. Oh, nice. I've got a load of sketches still in one of my notebooks. <laughs> oh, that'll be worth something one day, mate. Yeah, long nights <laughs> in a hotel in Coventry where I was, you know, drawing a kind of a search-based EPR. And, I, and I, I still think that's a really interesting idea. Um, but, you know, also a huge challenge for anybody to enter into that market. Um, and I ended up talking to Rinesh and Perrin, who are my co-founders, um, Perrin was leading a tech projects at Coventry for, for, for Newton for the consultancy and Rinesh I'd worked with at length at, um, at the vegetable pea factory actually. <laughs> nice. Oh, it's good to go full circle on the vegetable factory. You've got to, it's, it's so central to this story. <laughs> There's no, honestly, if I, if I chop onions, I have flashbacks. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, and, and they kind of shared some of my thoughts and we thought, well, let's, let's start a business in this space as you do make a difference yeah and you know it was it was a story that it started in the pub as all the best ones did um and we and we took quite a i guess a fairly analytical approach and we said we're not going to an epr but what what's a problem that we think that we can solve right now that has direct value to our customers um and will serve as a building block for for sort of more change and I mean, just to, just to stop you there, that is just an incredible framework for anybody that wants to solve a problem mm. across anything, right? It's, it's can we solve it? Yeah. Does it deliver value for a customer? And I think people will often do one or the other, mm-hmm. but I think really the business is in both, right? You then lay it on top of that, which is that 
is it going to lead to sustainable change and is are there things that we can layer on top and create a real business out of this that's almost like a, a real a nice to have but i i think yeah anybody that's that that wants a framework for for how to solve a problem in health tech that is the one you know can you solve it and then basically is there money behind it is there a pot of is there a pot of cash that we can get someone to actually pay for this i mean those it's amazing how uh how, how comes back to really, i suppose people think about those two things together yeah totally and and uh, you know all the way through our journey I've, I've always tried to come back to this which is you know what's the value for the for the customer oh, um, yeah you can demonstrate value for the customer everything else is it's not easy but um everything else falls into place yeah and um, and the, the problem we've decided to try and solve was uh appointment communication originally um and and that had come out of the fact that, again, kind of doing clinic studies in Coventry. And it, it, I guess this thing also comes back to being close to the problem and being uh, being on the ground. You know, I spent I spent weeks of my life sitting in clinic, um, but sitting in clinic in a very privileged position, which was sitting watching. Yes. Not you know not having to look after patients, not having to um, dispense drugs. I was I was literally privileged to be able to sit and just watch. Yes. And, um, and those insights, you know, again, I would, I would urge anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur, go and do the unsexy bit, which is go and sit as close to the problems you, you can physically get. You know? One thing we're saying here all the time, mate, immerse yourself in the problem, speak to everybody that that problem affects and touches and go two or three stages removed. Just absolutely right. Like immerse yourself in the problem, and 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 you're quite right. Just by being observant, mm-hmm. you're then going to truly understand the problem and understand how it fits into all the other things. Because that's the other thing about healthcare, right? Especially what you're trying to talk about now, like trying to solve a problem. There, I think it was Elliot from Infinity that came on here and just said, you know, he started pulling at the thread of handover and then realized if i'm going to solve that problem i've actually got to solve task management for the entire 12 hours before the handover like that's that's where that thread leads because that's healthcare right you can't just solve an isolated problem you've got to go in and immerse yourself so that you can figure out what the problem actually is which i think is where you're going which is great i, I think there's a um there's a hundred million pound business to be found in most industries through going and sitting with the people that have to do the day-to-day work. Yeah. I really do. Um, I get it. I think this is what so many medical students have ideas because mm -hmm. literally they're in the same position. They go into clinic, you know, we've all been there going to clinic um, and you just, you just sit and you watch and you're not, as you say, you're not often burdened with, with decision-making. So you can just be so observant as to like, how's this clinic actually running? Like, how did they get here? Like what's, why are they doing that? Why do people come in and wait two hours just to be told that they can go home and like, nothing happens? Like this is this is dumb. Like why, why are we doing it this way? But it's so true. Like that 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 privilege to observe is definitely a, a theme here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so the thing I observed was patients turning up at the desk, not really knowing what was going on. Yeah, and and you know that was causing stress and it was causing inefficiency and it just felt it felt like it was an easy problem to solve it had a lot of value for everybody basically so how did you then think about the solution because that that is a mammoth task and i'm I, you know like elliot said you start pulling in that thread goodness knows where it leads i'm i'm really interested in 
like really practically now, like what were the steps? Okay. You realize that problem. There'll be loads of people listening that have realized problems in, in hospitals and GP practices and across healthcare. Practically, what were your next steps? So the very first thing we did, well, <laughs> the very first thing we did was we, uh, we applied to an accelerator. Nice. Um, which is Bethnal Green Ventures. Ah, oh, yes. And, and, and I credit Bethnal Green Ventures as a hugely important moment in the success of Doctor Doctor. So they, they didn't give us very much money. Um, they didn't take very much equity either, but they did give us some money. Um, what they forced, was they forced, they forced us to quit our job and go and do this full time. Yeah. First of all. And I, you can't build a successful business at scale as a side project. Correct. Not possible. Um, so the, the kind of what BGV gave us was it gave us uh, a forcing function to go, right, okay, we're going to do this full time. We're going to take this risk. Um, they also gave us another framework to look at problems in a different way. And, you know, we were, we were engineers and we were management consultants and we were, we were good at observing, but um, they taught us a lot about being a startup and um, some of the kind of additional uh, like kind of market thinking and all this, yeah. there, which, which was not in my skill set at all. Yes. And I met some great people in those three months and they taught us a lot, but we, we got laughed at on the program um, because we were the only team that didn't write any code in the three <laughs> Right. Okay. Um, and that was really purposeful because we knew we had a problem that we wanted to solve. Um, but we didn't feel we had enough understanding of the users. So we actually, yeah. we, we approached a hospital that we had worked with, which was Heather and Wexham Park hospitals, which is now part of Frimley. Mm. Um, and we spoke to the IT director and we said, look, uh, there's a guy called Nigel Owens at the time. Um, Nigel, we think, we think we might be onto something here. Can we, can we spend a bit of time talking to your team? So we're not going to charge you anything for it. Um, as it happened, Heatherwood and Wexham were uh, a hospital that was a bit challenged financially at the time. Mm. Um, and actually, a hospital that's in a position like that is quite a fertile place because they were, they were really keen to try and find answers. Yes. You know? So we had, we had a client that wanted to find answers and had you know, a, an urgency that was being imposed upon it by, by finance. Mm. Uh, and an IT director gave us permission. And we basically went and we spent three months talking to patients. We surveyed, I think we surveyed 1,500 patients over those three months. Um, we built a load of mock-ups, we did a load of wireframes, and we did a load of, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it these days, but... Um, basically like faking product. So okay. in the background would go, right, let's see if this workflow helps patients. And we would send them a text message manually and we'd pretend we were a computer replying and we'd, um, we just, we did a load of experiments basically. Yeah. Um, well, you, you basically tested the need for the technology before building the technology. Exactly. We didn't jump into, right, this is the answer. We're going to go and spend a load of time and effort building a really scalable technology. Yeah. Um, and it was that that led us to um, the discovery that the SMS was a really powerful mechanism, and we, you know, we use SMS extensively across our across our product sets, and mm. um, because it was a really pertinent and quick way to get information to patients. Yeah. Um, 
And we built our first set of rescheduling workflows, which allow patients to make and change appointments in the physio department um, re- remotely, but by text. And so that was the first, so was that the first product essentially then just the ability for patients to be able to change cancel appointments via SMS? Correct. So the, the trust had a reminder system, you know, uh, most hospitals have a, have a text message reminder system to reduce the NAs. And the insight that we had was a lot of patients who were DNAing did not attend um, for those people that are working in NHS. So that's mm. about 11% of NHS appointments nationally in acute care are missed for various reasons. It's about a billion pound a year problem. Um, most people who were DNAing, they, it's either that they didn't know about the appointment and sending them a text message reminder helps with that. Because they, they've got an address from like five years ago and they never get the letter. And exactly. Sort of, yeah. Like, you know, and, and that's really common and it's really sad that it's really common, but it is. Yeah. Um, and so you can fix that problem quite quickly. Um, but then the vast majority of the rest of the patients, they didn't want to DNA, but they'd been given an appointment at a time that didn't suit them and they, they couldn't get through to change it. Interesting. Um, and I've actually got a, you know, a, a personal example of that from um, my, my wife's brother, who is a, he's now an ophthalmologist, but he was a med student at the time. And he, um, he, when we just started the business, he had he DNA'd an appointment with the hospital um, because it was his graduation. Yeah. And he, and he, I remember him going through this mental turmoil of like, oh, I mustn't miss my appointment. It's really important. I know how frustrating it is. But it's my graduation day. And he tried and he tried and he tried to cancel this appointment and he couldn't do it. So, um, you know, that's, that's one anecdote, but we found that that was backed up again and again and again. by So the workflow that allowed them to reply to the message to say, I can't make this um, made a huge difference to um, attendance rates and made a massive difference to the stress that patients felt. Um, And it, it actually saved the administration team in hospital a load of time and effort. hundred percent. Because um, the phone's no longer off the hook with just people ringing every 10 seconds to try and change stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And also they don't feel bad that other people are waiting and there's that stress removal and people can redefine their jobs to actually things that do matter and the, all the rest of it, which, you, I mean, Christ, yeah, you can see you can see where all the efficiencies are very quickly. Um, really, really simple piece of technology that makes a massive difference. Yeah, but I think the, the the thing that strikes me here is just you, you did things in the right order to get to a very obvious conclusion, but an obvious conclusion that, that wasn't obvious to anybody else. It's only obvious when you've gone through and done everything in that order. As you say, you found the people that had a need, you had an idea, you tested the need for a bit of technology, you've... I suppose that's the management consultant in you, I suppose. And those short cycles we talked about, you know exactly the way to do those cycles. You know exactly the way to figure out the problem and figure out where the solution should be. And so then I suppose if you do all that work properly, the need just hit you in the face. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All the most obvious things in the world, they're they're only obvious once you've done all the research, right? Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. No, I love that. And so... You started there. So where is Dr. Doctor now? Give me the sort of elevator pitch. And I know that you've raised recently, so you must be good at this by now. So uh, what is Dr. Doctor now? How did you go from, uh, I suppose, just sending messages? You might still just be sending messages, but I imagine you do a few bits on top. Um, I mean, yeah, tell me all about it. 
We do so much more. So, uh, so some stats. Um, so far to date in 2020, we've we've helped 10 million individual NHS appointments uh, be scheduled oh. for 7 million unique patients. So, uh, you know, really proud of those numbers. And there's still a month left of the year. I think we'll <laughs> plenty more to do. We've done 8,000 video consultations in the last month. Um, we're collecting data from thousands of patients up and down the country. Um, and the product has reduced face-to-face tendencies in Nottingham, which has been our primary uh, test of some of our follow-up management tools, by between 40 and 60% in cancer specialties. Oof, wow. So we're making, you know, we're reaching a huge number of patients. You know, 10 million NHS appointments is, was a big milestone for us. Uh, but we're, we're not just, you know, helping those people in a small way. We're actually massively changing the way that clinical care is being delivered now. Mm. And, and my vision for our business is, um, I call what we're building the patient there. So I think uh, if you look at the last kind of, I guess, 15 years of, of acute hospitals, so everybody's kind of digitized their notes. They've, bu- they've bought a patient administration system. They've, bu- they've bought an EPR. Mm. And the next wave is, is this patient there. And I think every hospital in the Western world will buy some sort of patient layer in the next five years, mm. um, some way, shape or form. And that's all about bringing patients into the conversation and, and allowing doctors and patients to work together in new ways using technology. Um, I love that, man. And so of late, I mentioned it earlier that you've obviously, you've obviously raised money. Now you guys have been on what seems to be like an organic growth model for quite some time. You know, when we were able to get out and about, obviously you used to hang out at the health foundry a fair amount, which is where you guys were, were also hanging out most of the time. And I've seen you guys grow and just, you know, the amount of bodies in that corner of the, uh, of the building increase and increase. You obviously taken a decision to raise some money to probably speed up that growth. I'm interested. I'm interested in that decision because it's very rare that you do get the sort of bootstrapped organic growth tech companies, particularly in health tech. We always you know, talk about big raises and, and big seed rounds and this sort of thing. But you guys obviously got to a point, you, you had revenue, you, you were, as I say, organically growing. Tell me about the decision to raise and, and what you were looking to do there. I, so, I, I, you know, I loved being a bootstrap business because it, it forced us to be lean and it forced yeah. us to those problems. Um, you know, and we had a great, so we've been around since 2012, been around for quite a while now, you know, had a great eight years. But it was never a, it was never a dogmatic decision to be bootstrapped. It was that, um, you know, we were growing effectively without having to dilute ourselves. And, um, and I never felt that we were constrained by cash, actually. I always felt that, um, you know, I looked at, other people in the market raise a huge amount of money and not make more progress than us. Fair. Um, and I never felt therefore that money was the, um, was the missing part of the equation. And then we got to the end of last year and I, we had some early results from the Nottingham follow-up management work. We were very, very excited by that and, you know, beginning to move into kind of the more clinical sphere. And I realized that the market was, going to go through an inflection point relatively mm. and i decided that um if the market was going to go through an inflection point 
I wanted to put Doctor Doctor in a position where we could lead that change rather than follow that change. Yeah, interesting. So we decided we were going to go to market. We decided we were going to raise some money. Um, we started that process at the end of 2019, and then obviously COVID happened. In, yeah, fair. Um, Which, so, to be fair, actually, given, given your reasoning for, for raising money, actually would not have affected your decision to keep raising money because that reason remains the same that you wanted to be front running and taking the opportunity, which was clearly increased, I guess, by what's yeah. happened. And, you know, I think uh, when I thought there might be an inflection point coming, I didn't realize it was going to be <laughs> aggressive as it has been. <laughs> Certainly. It was not in the plan. Um, so I'm really glad that we made that decision. And certainly, you know, what I think COVID has, has certainly in secondary care, COVID has just um, highlighted the, the, the areas that were a problem already. There's not, it hasn't actually created new problems. It's, it's just put, um, it's shined a light on, mm-hmm. on the parts of the system that are inefficient. And um, I think the change that it's forced would have happened, but it would have taken maybe five or seven years longer. And it's happened in a year. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, we were mid-raise when COVID happened. Um, everybody obviously got spooked. No VCs did any business for um, about six weeks. Then, uh, and, and we actually kind of stopped. We, we didn't stop engaging, but we, we started focusing internally and we built, sure. we built our video consultation platform. Um, we built a few other bits and pieces specifically to help with COVID recovery. And um, it's probably the most exciting probably three months of my career actually because we were just working so hard on building oh, products wow. and getting that getting that into our customers hands and then um it kind of calmed down a bit and we went back to our original set of investors who who still like the value proposition and um yeah we and we and we closed the deal nice man and i think it's it's it's, it's one of those that obviously people raise money for different reasons and you don't let me phrase this correctly this is going to sound really clumsy but you don't you don't raise money just because you need the money you've raised the money because you wanted the money because what that was going to give you is the ability to scale your business properly and take an opportunity as you saw it i think that is extremely important again you can build a business and bootstrap it, get to a point where your finances look fantastic, that then that money gives you a leg up rather than getting to the point where, oh, we need more money to just throw more into development and all that sort of stuff. It's a different way of thinking about this. And I think in health tech, it's rare, but I love the fact that you guys have done that. And I think the opportunity that you've now taken is, is well, back to what you said before solving a problem and making sure there's money for it i've seen was it last night the the announcement of what two and a half billion that's going to be available to help clear the yeah. nhs backlog and things like that i mean you must be looking to uh, help people along those lines right yeah and you know and that's the problem that we've been solving for eight years so yeah. he's better positioned to go and actually help the nhs for that right now than we are um and it's 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 exciting to be in a position where we're really well funded um, there's a really clear problem uh, that we can go and fix and we can go and fix quite quickly. And, and to your previous point, um, raising, so we, 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 we've been a profitable business since 2014 and um, raising money when you're a profitable business is so much easier. Oh God, I bet. <laughs> the other way around. Um, 
and it means you can get better terms. You can dilute yourself less. Um, you know, we the investor raised, knows they're getting the money back eventually. Exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, we raised a valuation which was um, less than some of the exciting stuff that you see in TechCrunch. Yeah. But, um, but we were really careful about downside protection, and um, you know, term sheets aren't all about the headline numbers, and. and We've chosen investors who share our values, which I think is really important. Love that. Yeah, because an under-impact venture, uh, impact investors, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we talked to heaps of investors and we ended up with uh, loads of term sheets, actually, which is really... Um, yeah. Um, I thought it might have been a popular round, actually, when I, uh, when I heard about it. Um, and we went with an under because I, I didn't start Dr. Doctor really to get rich. I started Dr. Doctor because... I genuinely felt that we could have an impact on those problems we talked about earlier in the podcast. And, and they shared that they shared, um, shared this sense of purpose. And, um, you know, again, this comes from Bethany Green Ventures. I think, you know, you can build impactful, large profitable businesses that create social change and social good. And that really is what gets me out of bed in the morning as much as anything else. I love that, mate. And we hear it on this podcast all the time that ultimately the entrepreneurs that get to your sort of stage have to be impact driven. You can't wake up every day, every morning, you know, running through 20 brick walls just for the money because you'd end up choosing something else. You'd end up doing something else. There are easier ways to make those returns. But I think being impact driven and interestingly comes back to something that you said right at the start about there's nothing like results to galvanize a team and to, and to, and to foster that kind of belief and motivation. And I think that that's, that that's an extension of you internally as well. Right. Because I imagine it was the same when you did one of those, you know, short closed loop projects down on the ground floor of the vegetable factory to like, when you do that at scale and end up, you know, 10 million patients deep into the NHS, the point is you're still getting that motivation and internal reward, which obviously you're then going to subconsciously pick your team on being impact driven or indeed consciously pick your team on being impact driven and things like that. Um, so there's, it's, it's clearly an extension of, you, of, of your leadership and yourself and your personality that you've built a company that I suppose is so impact driven, which just sounds awesome. And yeah. you guys even go on a ski trip every year, right? I've, I've heard and seen about this and I've been knocking around the health foundries. There's probably nothing to galvanize a team like going on a ski trip. That's I imagine free or close to it. <laughs> well, I, it, if you do have a sense of purpose, it's, it is, it's so easy to motivate yourself and motivate the team. It really is. But that's not enough. And you're right. You've got to have fun while you do it. There's no point um, going to work every day if you don't enjoy yourself. So yeah, we we do we do loads of stuff with our with our team. The ski trip is great. Um, it's you know highlight of everybody's year. We obviously run our party, which I think you've been to a few times. Yeah. Um, and we obviously didn't run it this year, so we're hoping 2021 will be bigger than ever. And it's 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 an open invite. The Doctors Summer Party to people in our network friends, people that work in, in the space. The party is a, is, a, is a chance to stop and pause and celebrate because everybody who, who works in healthcare works really, really hard. And it's often a very, very thankless role. And I think it's incredibly important we stop and we, we celebrate the successes everyone's had and just pause and pat each other on the back and say, well done. So yeah, the, the summer party's very, very important to me. And so I'm hoping you're going to come along next year, mate. 
I'll be there, buddy. I will be there. And I suppose, as you say, it's open to uh, everybody in your network. And so there is probably not a better uh, call to action or, or an opportunity or reason to be in your network than that, <laughs> at least. Um, so on that note, what is the best way for people to get in touch with yourself or indeed Dr. Doctor? So, uh, you know, if you want to speak to me, LinkedIn or Twitter are great. And um, if you want to get in touch with the team more broadly, go on our website. We, we've got loads of resources and content on there. So, um, you know, click on our blog, read the latest thinking from the team. And um, there's a contact us form, fill that out. We're, as I said, we're impact driven. So if you work in a hospital, even if you don't think you're in a place to, to do a project with us, we love to share what we've done and what we found works and what doesn't work. Um, so, so go to the website, read some of that stuff, talk to the team and, you know, let's start a conversation. This has been an absolute pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. No worries, James. It's always great to talk to you and, um, yeah, look forward to catching up soon. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.